have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to the Gospel of Mark. Most of you know we've been working through Mark's Gospel verse by verse. So here we are this morning in chapter 14, verse 66, page 721 in our church Bibles. So Mark's Gospel, chapter 14, verse 66, page 721 in our church Bibles. Just a second or two we're going to read. Okay, verse 66, let's hear the word of the Lord. While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When he saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also were with that Nazarene, Jesus, she said, but he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said, and he went out into the entryway. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, this fellow is one of them. Again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. He began to call down curses on himself, and he swore, swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. Immediately, the rooster crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him before the rooster crowed twice. You will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. Amen. Let's pray together and thank God for his word and ask him for help to understand it and to, and to preach it. Father, that, that's our prayer this morning. It's very simple. We can't do anything as we need to without your help, so we would beg for your help now, and we would ask that you would make this moment matter forever, and we pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Maybe one of the most disappointing things about being human is in our ability to fail one another, and, and worse, to fail God, because we can be quite good at it. Because of this, every one of our relationships, if it's going to be real, and if it's going to last, has to be grounded in God's grace, or it is not real, and it will not last husband to wife, children to parents, sister to brother, children to children, Christian to Christian, church to her leaders, friend to a friend, and certainly us to our God. If it's going to be real, and if it's going to last, it has to be grounded in grace. Now, there are other relationships, we'll call them counterfeit relationships, for example, when one person is always in bondage or in fear to another, almost like a slave where one person is the dominant one, and if you, if you don't do everything just right for them, the relationship is over, or it breaks down, or some kind of like uh, dehumanizing punishment comes, and you get some type of verbal beatdown. Maybe they even use the Bible for that beatdown to set you straight again. But who can endure that kind of thing? And is that a real relationship? And it's more like being around a ticking time bomb. And how does love grow in that? And there can be also political relationships where one person wanting position or wanting to maintain that position and they pander to others, a kind of yes man or or yes woman person when everything is yes, not because they harden, love you and they believe in you or, uh, or even agree with you, but their yes is simply a yes because they don't want to lose their position, they don't want to lose their station, whether it be in the world, the church, the home, the workplace, wherever. So again, they politic with people. They pander to them. 
And you don't need to be too bright to pick up on that and take uh, advantage of that kind of person. Maybe take them hostage with veiled threats. You know, if you don't agree with me, uh, you can lose your position. You can lose your place. If I don't like you and you're not, if you're not pandering to me, you better watch out. And that is why the grace of God in Christ is the only hope for any relationship which is real, which is meaningful, and which will last especially the most important relationship we can ever have, the relationship between us and a holy God. And we see this now very clearly in Peter. Peter is being a terrible friend. And the only way Peter is going to have a relationship, the most important relationship in his life, a relationship where his eternal destiny hinges on, is by the goodness and grace of God, which sends his son to the cross to pay for the sin of Peter's open denial of Jesus Christ. Peter blows it big. On the human level, he has no hope at all. He renounced Jesus in his swearing to God. That's verse 71. Do you see that there? More about that later. He renounced Jesus to those people standing right in front of him. He's denying Jesus in front of people. And remember what Jesus said in Matthew's gospel? If you deny me here, I'll deny you up there to the Father. What's Peter going to do now? Mark chapter 8, verse 38. You ashamed of me here? I'll be ashamed of you up there. What's Peter going to do now? If Peter is relying on Peter for the sense of security and peace with God and a relationship with Jesus Christ, Peter's toast. Now I say all that because the danger of a text like this, beyond the fact that many of us are familiar with it, is that we can turn this into a sermon about how not to be like Peter. So we're going to preach Peter. We're not going to preach Christ. So if you do these three things, you do these four things, then you won't do Peter. And of course, there is some truth to that. Peter was told, chapter 14, verse 38, to watch and pray by Jesus that he might not fall into temptation. He didn't pray. He fell into temptation. We should pray so that we will not fall into temptation. This is true, but is it not equally true? And are we able to admit this morning, we have prayed, lead me not into temptation temptation, yet we were tempted and we fell into temptation and our own rebel ways, we just sunk ourselves into that sin. It's terrible, but it happens. Then what? The point, and I think you see this coming, this is not a how to not be like Peter's sermon. This is, look how breakable we are. Look how self-deceiving we are. Look how arrogant we are by nature and how we can be the same even, even as a follower of Jesus Christ. I mean, my God, Peter, you spent three years with Jesus day and night, night and day. You saw things. You saw miracles. You preached in Christ's name. You healed in Christ's name. You walked on water for a bit. You saw the glory of Jesus Christ on the mountain. What else do you need, Peter? Right? That, and that's the party line of the how-toers. Oh, we need more lessons. We need better lessons. We need, we need uh, brighter teachers. And by golly, you show us the way, and we can do it. That's not working here. What else do you need, Peter? Well, he, like we, need grace. That's the message of Mark's gospel. That's why this gospel was written. I mean, in three and a half years, a person can learn all kinds of skills that will carry them for a life, lifetime. You can earn degrees so that you will be incredibly equipped with some spectacular skill. But this here is not like that. This is even the disciple of Christ is very capable of a profound, shocking immaturity 
living thick in his flesh. So yeah, Peter, you didn't pray for yourself and you should have. That's true. But Peter, Jesus prayed for you. Peter, and this is a picture of the gospel. Peter, Jesus did for you what you would not do for yourself. Luke's gospel. But I have prayed for you, Simon. This is Jesus. That your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, Strengthen your brothers. This is the intercessory ministry of Jesus Christ. The intercessory ministry of Jesus Christ. Strength behind every one of our victories. What a friend we have in Jesus. So, Peter's victory, and any victory we'll know, will not be rooted in our accomplishment before God. Now hear me. Any victory we will know will not be rooted in us accomplishing something before God, but what God has accomplished in Christ on our behalf. That's fundamental to this talk. So, so can you see how no one is getting it right about Jesus? No one. The disciples and all the time and effort in ministry with Jesus, they blow it. The religious leaders, decades of study, decades of worship and prayer and fasting, they blow it. Not Peter, who is supposed to be a good friend. He even said, chapter 14, verse 29, I will never disown you, Jesus. What does that mean? It means loved ones. And listen carefully. By nature, left to ourselves, Mark's gospel tells us we are Christ's enemies. And it's only going to be by God's grace are we made, made into his friends. I'm going to say that again. By nature, left to ourselves, the gospel shows us we are Christ's enemies. And it's only going to be by God's grace that we are made his friends. That's the message of this story. And so while Peter was being a terrible friend, the Bible is a good friend. Because it tells us what we are. It tells us why we are the way we are. And it points to Jesus as the only remedy for that condition. Three points. I'll try to get through them quick. We're going a little over, so bear with me so I don't have to feel like I rushed. Is that cool? Okay, before, during, after. Number one, before. In other words, before this denial, Peter exhibits in his life a kind of reckless courage on one end, fused together with an arrogant self-confidence on the other. So on one end, he would be like, let's just go for it. And that on its own, I think that's pretty cool. However, the problem was that kind of go for it was attached to this other end where Peter was fueled by, frankly, Peter. I mean, he is obviously stuck on himself. He can't do any wrong. He knows the answer to every question. He's the best at everything he does. He can do things and see things better than anyone else, even to the point of contradicting Jesus Christ. And that is a killer. An utter perfection is right in front of Peter in Christ, and Peter's fallen nature, which means our fallen nature, is so blind that we're willing to say, Jesus, we know better than you. That's what the Bible calls sin. That's what we do every time we sin. And the evidence for Peter is all throughout the Gospels. I'll give you two. Chapter 8, verse 27. Peter was given the grace to be able to say that Jesus Christ is, is the Son of the living God. He's the Messiah. However, Jesus tells him specifically what that's going to mean. And Peter has the audacity to take Jesus aside, correct him, even to the point of actually rebuking Jesus. I mean, in other words, Peter does not believe in the words of Jesus Christ. And Peter is hostile towards the words of Jesus Christ. Chapter 14, verse 27, Jesus speaks the words, um, you will all fall away. And again, that same hostility, that same audacity. 
Peter looks at Jesus and says right in front of the other disciples, and here's his arrogance on display. Verse 29, even if all fall away, I won't. What's he saying? I am better than all the other disciples, and Jesus, I know better than you. At best, he's contradicting Jesus. At worst, he's calling Jesus a liar. Jesus says, you will all fall away. Peter comes right back with you. You have it wrong, Jesus. I will not. That is audacity. That is arrogance. That is self-confidence rooted in absolute ignorance. Think about that. Self-confidence rooted in absolute ignorance, which gave Peter that liberty of tongue that he had. And you see, this is so clear when he sets himself apart from everybody, including Jesus Christ. Essentially what Peter says is, I am not like other men. Not like them. Even if everybody falls away, I will not. Now, don't you get the impression, at least I do, that at this point in Peter's life, he would be really hard to be around. I would, at this point in his life, I would hate for him to be my dad. He probably complains a lot. He probably likes to set himself apart from other people a lot. He probably like, likes to contradict everything a person would say a lot. And I suspect he would make you feel like you'll never be as good as him. A lot. No real surprise then, the disciple with the sword that cuts off the high priest's servant's ear, who Mark does not name for us, but John does, is none other than Mr. Incredible, Peter. I put in my notes right here, spend, spend one hour in a room with me. I'm talking about me. Spend one hour in a room with me, and, and, and if my heart is laid bare, you will find it very easy to discover why I deserve hell. That's safe for me to say in this context. No matter. Peter displays the fundamental sin of the entire human race. It started in the garden. It's rooted in pride. The fundamental sin of the entire human race is that we do not believe God. We do not believe God's word. That's Peter. Jesus, I'm going to the cross. Peter, no, you are not. Jesus, you will all fall away. Peter, no, I will not. Jesus, things are going to get really rough, Peter. You better watch and you better pray. Peter, I can sleep through this. It's not going to be a problem. That's him before. Second point, during. And the during is during the trial of Jesus. Most of what is taking place here at the same time Peter's little thing is going on. So get that. The trial upstairs. There's a trial downstairs. It's interesting. Jesus is humbling himself. He's taking in all the lies and the exaggerations of all the people in that room in order that the Peter's sin of arrogance and ignorance and unbelief and denial could, could be fully paid for. Again, what a friend we have in Jesus. Romans chapter 5 verse 8, but God demonstrated his own love for us in this. Give me a little liberty. While Peter was downstairs denying him, Christ was upstairs preparing to die for him. Verse 66, Peter's in the courtyard. Jesus is upstairs. Peter's trial downstairs is not going well. Oh yeah, he's going to get out of there with his life. But it's not going well. Verse 67, a little girl, servant girl, sees Peter warming himself. She takes a, cl a close look and says, 
you also were with that Nazarene Jesus. Now, I want you to listen carefully because many commentators give Peter some props because they say, well, at least he was in the courtyard. So before we condemn him for his collapse, let's commend him for his courage. But I can't, and here's why. Do you see that little phrase? And I hope your Bible's open, verse 67, with the Nazarene. The Greek implies something that the English can't really do unless you use a whole lot of words. So with the Nazarene is more likely he is with, meaning he's one of them. He's part of the group. He, he's, he's a Nazarene by, if you would, tribe. And it's the same word that Mark uses in verse 54 of chapter 14. Your eyes can just go up. Peter was with the guards. In other words, with is not with as in location. Peter was located with the guards. It's more like Peter is an identification. Like, I am with you. I am around the fire with these guards, and I'm identifying myself with your intent here. And it only takes a few verses to read into that where we find that Peter's denial has already started seeping into Peter's heart way before he goes public. That's a problem. Peter thinks he can handle this. Peter thinks literally he can get close to the flame and not get burned. And so Peter doesn't know yet what it means that the, the, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is so weak. He hadn't come to believe that the best of men and women are men and women at best. So the little lady asked the question. The big man lies. Verse 68, he denied it. I have no idea what you're talking about. Mark then tells us he went out into the entryway. Interesting. So just by chance, I had a, week, a conversation this week with someone who is qualified to speak about body language. And they were a big help. They were well-informed. I learned some things that I didn't know before. And if what they were saying was true, Peter, in his little move into the entryway, is giving off all kinds of signs here. If you, if you know Shakespeare's Macbeth, the, the queen says, me think he doth protest too much. It's like, okay, Peter, it's not working here. He doesn't persuade the little girl at all. And the second verse is the same as the first. Verse 69, she follows him. It's like I was thinking about my little Lindsay. She would do this. I know she would. She's like, yeah, that doesn't work. I'm going to push you a little harder. She's more assertive. He's one of them. Peter responds with another. Verse 70, open denial. So thus far, Peter has been given two chances in a short window of time to answer the questions represented by the servant girl, two chances to get it right, and he doesn't. This week I read um, an old article, uh, 2011, where there was an earthquake in Virginia the 23rd of August, and the only reason why I remember that because my daughter's birthday is on the 24th of August. But anyway, one of the things that it said was the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C., had a lot of damage caused because of the earthquake. So the church needed some repairs. And so one of the things they did, which was kind of clever, is they put out this advertisement to try to get people to donate to the repairs, which said this, come see the lifelong impact a few seconds can make. Come see the lifelong impact a few seconds can make. That was Peter. That is you and I. This whole scene doesn't last very long, but it costs dearly. In fact, it will be costing Jesus his life. A lifelong impact, a few moments, 
could make. So if you paid any attention to the news of the past few weeks, the news in religious circles, the news in commerce, the news in professional sports, the headlines tell that sad and terrible tale that's been told a thousand times before. You can spend 30 years building a reputation, but it only takes about 30 minutes for you to ruin it. That was Peter in this time. So when most people think of Peter, most people think of his denial, the fact that he walked on water and he just went right to the bottom. And most people don't think that about two months later from this event, just a little bit under two months, Peter will be preaching the gospel. And thousands of people will be converted. What a friend we have in Jesus. And just when you think it can't get any worse, verse 70, it does. Peter's accent, his dress probably portrays him. You know, he's a rural guy. He's not a city guy. Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. Peter's response, verse 71, it's not like he was cursing, you know, like a drunkard sailor. It's, actually, it's, it's worse. What he was saying was something like, may I die if what I'm saying is not true, or God is my witness that I am telling you the truth. Remember when you were a kid? I would say this, sorry, not you. I swear to God I'm not lying, and I was lying. And the irony is, is that Jesus said, listen, just let your yes be yes and your no be no. That's all you need. And the second irony is that Jesus was being charged, verse 64, for blaspheming. He wasn't. Peter's the real blasphemer, a liar, and he gets off scot-free. Chapter 14, verse 31, Peter insisted, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. Peter's a liar, which makes this terrible because it's not so much that he failed. Listen carefully. But it was the height that he himself audaciously climbed up. So his arrogant statements, one more step higher. His judgment of the other disciples, one more step higher. Setting himself apart as far better than the other disciples. I'm the only one who won't leave you. One more step higher. He trusted himself greater. One more step higher. His distrust of Jesus' own words. One more step higher. And every one of those steps is going to make his fall really, really, really hard. Peter thinks more and more of himself. More of himself than anyone should. And he falls hard. You know, I have a quote from Peggy Newton that I've told you a few times and I thought I'd bring it up. It's July 9th. She said for 30 years, the self-esteem movement told the young that they were perfect in every way. Which created an entire generation with no proper sense of inadequacy. That may or may not be true, but when you open your Bible and you think about all the big failures in the Bible, they were not young people. They were middle-aged or older people. Noah, David, Jehoshaphat, Hezekiah, middle-aged, older, Peter, Peter, probably middle-aged. They fell hard because they thought, I thank God I am not like other men. King Uzziah, Uzziah was greatly helped until he became strong. He grew proud to his own 
destruction. Because pride kills a man before he truly dies. And if Peter would have denied Christ, let's, or excuse me, let's say he would not have denied Christ. It's hard for people to think, uh, to, to, to think that he would have had to die for that. I mean, it was hard enough for Jesus to get to the cross. I mean, they had to go through all that political maneuvering to get him to the cross. One of his followers, it's kind of hard to see that happening. I have a book that's entitled In the, the, the Final Days of Jesus' Life. And this quote is in there. Peter chose the path of expediency instead of faithfulness. Being paralyzed by fear of man rather than the love for Jesus and the fear of the Lord. And Peter's pride blinded him to the fact that he, even he, could deny and lie about Jesus. I hope we all see ourselves here. Final point after. And it's just like Jesus said during the trial, the rooster already crowed once. Verse 68, if you see the little text note in there, the NIV dropped to the bottom, that's the first time the rooster crowed. The second time, verse 72, and then it reads, then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. Broke down and wept. Listen to what it means in the Greek. Uncontainable, audible grief. In front of all those people. That's the peculiar part, right? Because I was thinking, why don't they just rush him and and take him away? (laughs) Uncontainable, audible grief. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. Peter, you had so much confidence in yourself. Peter, you had so much ability. Peter, you had so much favor. Peter, you were supposed to be the best of us. Yes, but Peter says, years removed. Yeah, but you know, something that I learned that day, the best of men are men at best. And many of you know that Peter's story, thank God, did not end here. But I can say with 100% certainty that the best part of Peter's story probably began here. Because Peter's usefulness does not come into a full bloom until he has shown his brokenness. He is driven by the providence of God. Mark that. He's driven by the providence of God to the verge of despair to see who he actually was in the eyes of God. No hiding, Peter. This is who you are. There was a lady, a famous singer in the 60s, who was doing one of her first auditions to another famous producer. And the producer heard her, and he said to the person next to him, she won't be great until someone breaks her heart. She became great. Someone probably broke his heart. You won't become great, Peter, until you actually see who you are. Everything Jesus said about Peter was true. But Peter lived as if the words of Jesus were untrue. Others may fail you, not me. Can I ask you a question? When I gave you that little, spend an hour with me in the room, and you'll find out why I deserve hell, did you turn religious on me? Did you kind of say, well, man, you're a pastor, shouldn't you show some fruit? Peter was full of self-confidence. Peter wanted to prove he is worthy of Jesus. He, like we, you know, we're the ones who don't think at times we need Jesus. A warning for the accountability people, 
careful that the only reason why you desire accountability is because your pride is so thick that you do not want anyone to see you fail. Tell me when I'm wrong so I won't be exposed as a failure. Why? Well, I just don't want to look like a failure. That's it. That's it. Peter wanted to prove that he was not like other men. God's plan for his life showed him he was. We are. We are like Peter. At times we can be selfish, we can be vain, and we, we therefore are weak. Which means we can never ever earn the love of Christ. Christ wins our love. We do not win his love. Jesus does not love Peter based on Peter's behavior. Jesus loves Peter because he's Jesus. He loves Peter in spite of Peter's unfaithfulness, in spite of his arrogance, in spite of his denial, in spite of his failure. And loved ones, our love for Christ must also be built on that humiliating self-knowledge. Is your love built there? Our love for Christ has to be built on the humiliating self-knowledge of that we are unfaithful, we are treacherous, we are arrogant, and we fail And we can do it time and time again. I want my love for Jesus to be built on that humiliating knowledge. Because you see, to say we want to be better, it's not foundational Christianity. Any human can say that for a million other reasons. But it takes grace to take us to the place i.e. the Apostle Paul, we we could say Romans 7, Oh, wretched man that I am. Oh, wretched woman that I am. Middle-aged man here, probably a little older, a wretched man that I am. Who's going to help me? Oh, my God. Who's going to save me? Have mercy on me, O God. And loved ones, you and I would be no worse for wear if we said that many, many, many times during the day. Oh, wretched man that I am. Oh, wretched woman that I am. Have mercy on me. Help me, God. If you don't help me, if I'm left to myself, where you're like, well, that sounds kind of desperate. Peter could have taken that advice. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Do you know who wrote that? Peter. One Peter. He learned his lesson. And so, Mark doesn't tell us this, but Luke tells us, uh, chapter 2, verse 20, or 61 of his gospel, the Lord turned after the third, or the second crow, The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. And then Peter wept bitterly. What do you think were in the eyes of Jesus? How would you have looked at Peter if Peter failed you like that? You need to be careful. Just be careful. I suspect Jesus looked at him and loved him. Loved for a failure. Love not born out of admiration for Peter, rather love born out of a heart whose very nature is love, who pours his love into us when we deserve it. Do not deserve it, right? He pours in his love into us on the human level at the worst possible time, but it's the best possible time. A love which exchanges our disobedience with his blessing and his righteousness. Victor Hugo said, life's greatest happiness is to be convinced you are love. And with that look, I'm convinced that Peter knew 
that he was loved. And he had a whole new beginning, not based on self-confidence, not based on pride, not, but on the humiliating knowledge of who he actually is, which drew him to full dependence. And above all, based on what happened in those three hours on Good Friday. So now when, when God says, Peter, I will supply the obedience you need in Jesus. I will supply the sacrifice you need in Jesus. Peter, I'm going to supply everything you need. Because Peter, you can't supply anything. I imagine Peter is much more agreeable now to that truth. Because that's the gospel. How can, can God be right and at the same time make me right? Well, he gives me the gift of his righteousness even amidst all of my failures. That's, that's the gospel. What a, what a friend we have in Jesus. So let me just end by saying this. Our security as a Christian does not reside in, in anything in us but it resides in the indestructible love of our Savior. And while trials and tribulations teach us many things, we dare not leave those trials and tribulations if we get through them, kind of like thinking that we're bulked up spiritually, right? So we went through this trial, so I'll be ready for the next one. Rather, we leave them more honest about ourselves, about our sin, about our weakness, and thinking more about the sustaining grace of God and the wondrous love of our Savior and His indestructible love. And humility is the great safeguard of our life. To be brought low is good for us. And to know the, the depth of our need for mercy listen carefully, is stronger than our suffering and our affliction because knowing our need for mercy takes us to the very root of our problem. Suffering and affliction can make us aware of the problem, but it doesn't take us to the root of the problem. Crying out for mercy before we ever get to those places does. Three quotes And we're done. The true Christian knows. I am what I am. By the grace of God. I have not done this to myself. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Martin Luther. The gospel is true. Because it deprives men of all glory. Wisdom. And turns all honor. To God. Alone. So if you saw the movie The Gladiator, there's that classic quote, the time for men to honor themselves will soon come to an end. Let that day be today for all of us. The time for us to honor ourselves must come to an end. Let that day start now. Thanks for your attention. Let's pray as we prepare for communion. And if the men would make their way forward, please. Father, we can say with a glad and happy heart, what a friend we have in Jesus. Amen. Amen.